Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're exploring the use of artificial intelligence in medicine and my guest is Dr. Ramin Shakur, a clinical scientist in cardiology who has a research team and teaches at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the United States and is also founder and CEO of Cambridge Heartware based in Cambridge, UK. Uh, Ramin Shakur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gavin, and a pleasure to be here. So before we discuss the technology developed by Cambridge Hardware, can we look a little bit about the problem that you were trying to solve? This is related to detection of irregular heartbeats as a precursor for stroke, if I've understood it. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, so the whole premise for Cambridge Hardware came about from my clinical background, where in cardiovascular disease and in cardiology in general, we see the effects of irregular heartbeats and arrhythmias uh, in general. And one of the interesting points about stroke, although a neurovascular problem, the one of the most common causes of that is due to irregular heartbeats. And actually ischemic strokes, well over 80% are due to an irregular heartbeat. So it's sort of like a chicken and egg. Um, How do we find and then initiate therapy, which are on most cases, just by having simple tablets of anticoagulation reduces the risk of stroke uh, and comorbidities by more than 50, 60%. So it seemed like a bit of a no brainer and we're trying to be a bit more proactive in our diagnostics team. And so that's where I thought, how do we sort of move that field forward, which didn't seem to have gone very far since the 60s. Take us through the idea that you had and therefore the development of the company and and the HeartSense product that came out of that. So one of the key points uh, from my academic hat on was the application of what I would call systems biology, the application or to understand biological systems, be it within the heart or how genes are actually interacting. But if you look at it from a medical device perspective, if you're trying to find this needle in a haystack, you need very good methodologies to actually find this needle, but also have a system and process which can be in almost in a real-time methodology, but also not be so cumbersome for clinical teams and for clinical colleagues so that it can be part of a normal clinical process. Because what you don't want is reams and reams of data and no real means to actually analyze it or analyze it in sufficiently um, quick enough time. And so it was that where I looked into the problem and I saw, and you probably find this a bit funny, so the first prototype I built of the device was in my back garden with my little uh, electrical knowledge. But what that did was to show that there is the possibility of having wearable devices which can pick up ECGs as and when we're moving around. And then how do we add on the second point, which is an immense amount of data, much more granular than we are getting currently even when you're in the GP surgery and sort of sat down with your normal octopus ECG on your chest. Um, In this way, we wanted to sort of open that up. And that is where the application And so some of our academic needings in terms of machine learning uh, and what we in term call artificial intelligence, but I would really call it assistive intelligence, comes into play. 
So let's talk a little bit about this assistive intelligence. I like that term, and and the relevant algorithms that that are coming with it. So tell me a little bit about these algorithms. What are they designed to do, and and how does this improve on previous technology? So the uh, concepts of artificial intelligence. It's something that you know I, I tell my students here is, you know, AI can mean one of two things, uh, um, absolutely incredible or absolutely idiotic. And we'd rather not be in the latter. And what happens in medicine is it is a very defined algorithmic process anyway. If you take the history, the examination, the findings of that, um, you have a very intelligent person, or we hope so, who's sort of amalgamating all of that, your physician, clinician, and teams together. And then he says, you have this problem. And that boxing of the diagnosis has worked for us for many a century, but has always come with a process initiated by a problem which you present with. What the algorithms, however, and this is sort of one of my you know, real aims for the whole company is to bring in this whole dawn of better sensitive understanding of diseases. And you only get that when the data is of such a granular level that it's not just going to give you an answer, it's going to give you some other outputs that we hadn't thought of because it's in such a granular level. Let me give you an example. So previously you go to the GP and he says, okay, I'm getting palpitations. Okay, let's do an ECG. But that initiation came from you. Now, if I tell you that 40 to 45% of people will not even feel anything, then you're in a bit of trouble because you don't know what you're looking for and you're waiting for the problem to happen. So this goes back to sort of something that I'm very passionate about is preemptive and so proactive medicine, trying to not wait for the disease process to be inset and so therefore giving us less options to revert or even control the disease. And so what the algorithms are there for, and what we've done in a very unique way, which I'm very proud of, is to really take the research idea of trained and untrained machine learning, which opens up this whole field of saying, look, Ramin sees an ECG and he knows this is a problem, this is okay, brilliant. And other cardiologists will say this is a problem, this is okay. And you're replicating that in the machine, but now ask the question, what happens if the machine is not taught with those outputs and you're allowed to give it the freedom, almost like a baby or a child as it explores its world of saying, what does this really squiggly line mean, dad? And so that sort of point, is where we were intrigued in. And you know, a lot of our patents and a lot of our research is going into that level of machine learning, which is outside the realms of just simple trained data. You're a cardiologist. Presumably you've brought in expertise from other people in terms of algorithms and so on to pull all of this together. How did that happen? When I went back to do my PhD, it was a very biological sort of systems biology PhD um, here back in Cambridge, um, I was sort of privileged to have a lot of great colleagues in engineering. And one such person was Roberto Cipolla, Professor Cipolla, who's been a real doyen in terms of the application of uh, image processing for a while. 
And so what I asked him over, <laughs> over a lunch in college was saying, well, have you thought about that an ECG is an image? And if that image were to be streamed in real time, could you do something about the phase one, which is to understand what is normal, abnormal? And, and you know, like typical scientists, they said, of course, that's not a problem. But of course, that's where the problem really lies. So it's no good just saying that we can do it. We have to prove it. And even having proving it, um, this is where the nuances of being a medical device and sort of AI company really come to a head. We are trying to take devices, hardware, and software, put it together, and now in the confines of a very regulated area of healthcare, this is where the complexity lies, and this is where essentially um, a lot of our time and effort goes. Tell me a little bit about that regulation. What are the issues there in terms of getting this kind of product to market? Well, I mean, as you know, with uh, a lot of the current issues on regulatory bodies for COVID, it is a very, very um, long and arduous task. Um, if you're the FDA, you take a bit longer. If you MHRA, you, you have different sort of wings. So everyone has a different flavor, but we mustn't forget that they're all doing one of the same thing, which is to protect and to assess data for the benefit of everyone. And so that process is rigorous to say the least, whereby you're taking, in our case, hardware, which has to be of a medical grade standard. Um, it's, it's, it's not in the same ilk of saying, look, your watch is working, so that's not a river. But when you put a medical point onto it, you really up the ante a lot more. And so we're going through all of that and we've you know, successfully gone through to say, this is a, a medical product, electrically safe, it's not sort of um, compounded by the issues of um, general wear and tear. And then you have the software, which is another real bit of a nightmare. And, and the software is an interesting point because when you add on the nuances of this uh, black box uh, magic that a lot of people think about, which is AI, it's really difficult for the governance of that but also from our side to actually understand what are they looking for? How do we show that it's safe? And therefore, what companies have done is to really take the lowest rung on the ladder and say, well, this essentially can give you your heart rate. And then you slowly but surely have to put in a lot more effort with larger clinical trials, et cetera, to see well, how often and how sensitive is it? And so those things we've done, and again, the sensitivity and specificity for the algorithm is very high. But it is an unusual tack that we've taken that rather than sort of do it in phases, we've sort of gone into the jungle, you know, head first and say, we're going to be a hardware and we're going to be a software company and we're going to do it as an end-to-end -end solution and do it ourselves. So I think we've given a, uh, we're not sort of one to uh, a shy away from uh, trouble, but it seems like this is a, a really hard regulated area and at a time of flux, may I add, especially post-Brexit. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Do, do you think that the UK is a good place to set up this kind of company? I mean, you also have uh, teaching and other things in MIT, so you'll understand the, the US situation very well. Is it a good place for this type of innovation? And is there more that government could do to, to help? 
I mean, great question, Gary. I, I think there is uh, no doubt in terms of basic science, especially in artificial intelligence, the UK has a strong hold on that. I guess where your question really relies on is how effective are we at commercializing our basic science uh, power? And I think that's something that needs a bit more looking into. And there's a number of reasons why I feel that. Not, if you'd asked me this question before I'd set up Cambridge Hardware, I'd said, oh, yes, brilliant place. We do all of our research. Look at the number of papers we have. Um, and in all high-impact vector journals. But again, now with having had the sort of uh, advantage of hindsight, there are issues in terms of what I would call cultural differences between the US and UK, which make certain tech-based industries more popular. Uh, it is not uh, you know, without uh, the support of the government, which has tried immensely, I think, especially during COVID, to prop up companies, especially that. But what I would say, and I'm not, I hope I'm not being too critical here, uh, is to say it is a sort of blanket support. It doesn't actually understand, and this is where the policy has to be a bit more nuanced, that if you are supporting high IP companies, disruptive companies, and especially in an area which you say, look, is particularly hot on, especially AI, it, almost is a bit more nuanced than to say we just want one public body which says you will get money from one pot, which I think UK Innovate UK is trying to do. I mean, it came out from the history of, you know, uh, TSB, I believe, you know, and so it's come out of that. And it's sort of, you know, it's like a revamped car without actually ever changing the engine in a way. So sometimes I think it's better to now go electric. So I think that's where something new to actually reflect uh, these highly disruptive areas is something to look at. But that said, the UK, you know, does extremely well in terms of number of Euro unicorns for, for its size. There's no doubt about that. But what is uh, somewhat lacking, which we've found and sort of my own experiences of this, is funding bodies have um, not really gotten on board the SMEs and sort of the businesses that are actually high IP. And that is of concern because it's all well and good saying that we want IP driven companies in the UK, but you need some sort of physical support there, be it loans, be it sort of support. And that footprint and capital seems slightly lacking in the UK than it is in the US. So what's the solution to that? I mean, one of the things we've seen recently is the government uh, suggests that it needs to set up ARIA. Uh, and sort of based on the UK and on the American ARPA in order to take slightly bigger risk uh, things, but in particular to move away from the traditional UK system of not being too risky. Is that beneficial in this space or, or is it actually just a different type of organisation that, that needs to focus on SMEs and high IP? Again, uh, you know, great question, and one which I think needs uh, a multitude of inputs. But I would, first of all, start off by saying the concept of ARIA is interesting because it works and it has worked in some of the big definitive points of direction in science and technology, internet, GPS, as example. 
What we have to be careful of is I think there is a definitive change coming in technology development. Uh, there is a definitive change coming globally. And I understand why it would be pertinent to have something like ARIA for the geopolitics of what's going on there. But I can also understand your point there is, as a nation, we're quite risk averse. Mm. Um, and that is a, a historical and sort of conservative mentality. And that's nothing to do with the government. Uh, but in essence, if you have that risk averse mentality, it often requires a different setup and a different mentality to effectively allow the blossoming of these disruptive sciences. An example of that is when the internet and when sort of GPS was coming out, it wasn't sort of a defined output. There were almost sort of mistakes on the way which got us to an output. And that sort of serendipitous discovery, but also what I thought was particularly um, seen in ARPA is you need that current level of funding to allow that problems to be sorted out, fixed, go back, fixed, and then go out. So yes, it works and it has worked. Remember, it was in a post-Cold uh, War scenario that it really worked, so there was a focus here. But if you take those historical points, um, I would argue that um, are we approaching a similar sort of geopolitical system, maybe not so as a Cold War, but a sort of what I would call a silent war, in where technology and IP are the sort of national powers for each nation. And we look at what happened um, and what we were saying and what you know generally across the board with COVID. And one of the points that was highlighted uh, and the government already admitted was we didn't have the infrastructure nor the medical diagnostics infrastructure to be self-sufficient. Learning point. Um, how does one negate that? Because we have a lot of uh, startups and SMEs in this space. Why do they not get supported and why they're not blossoming as others maybe or are doing or are getting support in if you're based in Palo Alto? Really interesting. And you can see that the government are thinking about a lot of these issues uh, and will carry on doing so over the next year, I'm sure. I want to take you a little bit back to medicine and cardiology where we started off. Looking into the future across cardiology and medicine, are there other areas that AI could have a significant impact in, do you think? Yes, I, I, I definitely think so. Like I say, AI is a fantastic tool. It's a fantastic methodology. It's uh, really a, a, an open canvas as to how you use the AI. I would say in a broad perspective, outside of the general science research areas, AI does seem to get a bit of a bad press, uh, almost has connotations of nefarious nations using AI, et cetera, et cetera. But again, in medical point, we have to be very critical of what are we saying is AI or what is essentially trained data, repetitive notions. That I think is something that uh, machine learning is very good at. Um, examples of that, if you take a lot of 
imaging, for example, x-rays, you know, radiology is using AI increasingly. In cardiology, for example, you have echocardiography, you know, pictures of the heart, the size of the heart, there's already applications of algorithms being used there. But uh, I go back to the point of how much of this is really truly AI as opposed to assistive, and how much of this is truly groundbreaking is very much dependent on a societal understanding of where we want to use AI. And I think, I think for medicine, let's be very clear on that. I think most patients and myself included as from, or from the other side as a clinician and sort of uh, as a prescriber, would people be happy that the machine did my work? I'm not sure they would be, but would it be assistive to have something that is able to make life a bit easier to manage the ever more increasing complexity of cases that we see? Yes, it would. And I think that's where application of AI in medicine is very important. But similarly, I doubt the actual uptake of it will really kick off until we get a generation who actually understands the nuances of this. Like all things, we are sort of dependent on how well our ambassadors really understand the new technology, understand the whole concept of digitalization. And that is probably coming uh, and that's where, you know, a bit more training and a bit more emphasis on having a next generation of academic clinicians or clinicians in general who can understand a bit about coding and understand about uh, algorithms is always helpful. Uh, I think that's coming. But I think there is this hybrid period that we're going to see now, where in a regulated fashion, we will be able to see um, assistive intelligence uh, technologies, um, which use aspects of uh, AI research, and which actually assist in general. So I think that's a, for the next five uh, years coming, you will see a lot of that burgeoning out, and uh, it'll be a very interesting time. Fantastic. Just to finish off, maybe let me squeeze out of you one or two examples of where you think this could have an impact. And I'm I'm happy to blur the lines between artificial intelligence and assisted intelligence, but just in terms of what's happening now in medicine using some of these technologies that we will see different as clinicians and as patients in five to 10 years time. If you take the almost analytical power of a computer, uh, that in itself lends itself to really being repetitively uh, a good uh, ambassador for information gathering. So an example of that is if you are a radiologist or if you're an, uh, even a cardiologist and you're looking at pictures of the heart in echocardiography, yes, you know what you're looking at, you're looking for those problems, but there is a human error factor there. And how can you reduce that human error factor if you already apply some algorithms which says, well, this is what you roughly should be looking at. Make sure you're looking at these particular dimensions, making life a bit easier. Also, as a reminder, as a cue, that's already happening. If you look at the general spec in our area of sort of electrophysiology and ECGs, what is irregular and what is regular? Is it very black and white? In some instances, there is a very black and white point to it. But I would say the almost difficulty, but also amazing feat of biology in medicine is not everything is black and white.
right? And that gray zone is where the human interaction and the human mind is just so much better, right? And, and I think it, that that I think is one of the points that you're trying to sort of tease out there is, yes, if it is a clear-cut case of a yes or no answer, is this irregular or not? Fantastic. No problem. But, you know, there's a bit more to it than that when you just say, look, it's not the diagnosis that we're really worried about. We're worried about the patient. And I think that's what we have to be very careful about, especially in the application of technology like this in medicine. What are the some of the ethical points of this? There are a lot of companies now who are saying, look, we can take all of your medical data and we can analyze all of this. Where does that data go? who's in charge of that data, things that we're talking about now, some of which society has already embraced, right? So if you're already putting out pictures on a platform, you've already signed away the terms and conditions of what that means. Um, But we kick up a huge fuss when it's medical data, um, which would, if you say, that is only used in a medical sphere by my clinician and myself has to be very defined. And if that's guarded, I think that's not an issue. But what we are seeing now is technology companies who are not really in medicine coming into this space and the lines are getting blurred. And so we don't want to be in a situation where we're saying, look, technology is fantastic. They're all using AI, it'll all help you. But I think it really goes back to what is the mission statement here? What is the mission statement of the technology? What is the mission statement of the company? And if you are dedicated in in sort of the the premise that we are, that we want to use artificial intelligence for good and for clinical purposes, then go through the whole process of getting those certificates, go through the whole process of being accredited. But I think you can't have the cherry and not eat the cake. Well, we could have a whole separate discussion on some of the ethics and and certainly on health data, two massive topics, but we don't have time for that. So we'll better end it there. Ramin Shakur, thank you very much. Thank you, Gavin, and thank you for having me. And I hope it's been a very useful discussion and as it has for me to really express some of these points. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Ramin Shakur, a clinician scientist in cardiology at MIT and founder and chief executive of Cambridge Heartware. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Ramin Shakur, a clinician scientist in cardiology at MIT and founder and chief executive of Cambridge Heartware. You can find all previous editions of this podcast, plus details of all our events, blogs and other activities on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Next week, we'll be discussing how to regulate the internet, and my guest will be Antoine Verne.